Welcome to the locker room where we break down sermons, stories, and scripture for the race of our faith. If this podcast has been serving you, hit follow and the notification bell. Dan, it's good to see you. You doing well? Morning, Trig. You know, it's hard when, when there's no camera, nobody can see us. <laughs> yeah. And I just always like to describe what I'm looking. I can't believe that you <laughs> colored your hair purple today. It's just, <laughs> it's a little distracting, but whatever, it's fine. But you're looking good, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your hair's still brown. No one will and, ever know. Uh, Rod and Libby, um, it's good to have you back in this room. Uh, it's Christmas time. It's Feels great to good, be here. Doesn't it? It's it's freezing, though. Yeah, this room is freezing. kind of wish that we had some snow on the ground. I don't know. White Christmas. Like this would be the time of year when we get, you know, seasonally warm temperatures, right? For the month of December. <laughs> Didn't you golf last week, Libby? I did. I in golfed December. Uh, nine holes last week. That's awesome. December 8th. Yeah. Without yeah, me, I'm jealous. Without yeah. you. Well, you were out of the country, <laughs> but uh, all the you, cats away. How you feeling? Jet lagged, coming back from Ukraine. I was up at three today. There we go. It's better than two. Two nights before noon right now. Yeah. Well, uh, what was one of the weirdest Christmas traditions that you guys had growing up that maybe other people didn't do? I heard somebody this week that said they open all of their presents on Christmas Eve. And they just opened their stocking Christmas morning. That's heresy, in my opinion. That was my family. I think we opened all our presents on Christmas Eve. Good to tell you it was. Starting with Kentucky but Fried you Chicken. Didn't tell me that. First, we just had indulged in Kentucky Fried Chicken, barbecue style. But you would open all of your presents on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Wait, just lay out the Christmas Eve. So first, you would you'd go to church, right? Yeah, we go to church. Candlelight. Couldn't wait to get home. No, it was like what no, time? It was like a five o'clock. Service. Yes. Yeah, yes. Still and then, black then. Then we we, get, we got out the Kentucky Fried Chicken. Did you just two pick or three it up big on the way tubs, home? just doing it Vinsalcoma style? <laughs> Gravy, barbecue sauce everywhere. Um, I can picture it. Yeah, you can. So yeah, that was our. I don't know if that's weird. It it, it felt normal. You know, to us until I got so married. So then you went straight into buy- opening all your presents that night, right after the Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yes. Yep. All of them. And then no the next pre- day it would be the whole extended family. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. So you have to understand, there's different Santa Clauses too, right? There's Saint Nick. <laughs> there's Santa yeah. Claus. Exactly. Uh, Belschnickel. Bel- <laughs> from the office Belschnickel oh yeah <laughs> or uh, I my uh, my mom's side of the family uh, made name Nelson Swedish and we had a little guy named Tumta what I yeah. know How, have you heard of that I, well on Frozen they referenced that once yeah. they did yeah how did I miss that Frozen it's is on, like it's on one of the fro- the Frozen Christmas thing. Olaf's trying to get a tradition. Have you seen that one with all the traditions? Well, before I went to Wheaton, I I went to a school named Saint Olaf, and then oh yeah, I knew an I you knew many Olaf. Elsas at my school, <laughs> which is hilarious. And I had some friends that were Hans, a lot of Norwegian Swedes up there. So did you guys uh-huh. do Santa Claus? No, In Saint the, Nick. Saint okay. <laughs> Actually, no. If I'm really honest, my mom was repulsed by the idea of Santa Claus. <laughs> really? So I never believed in Santa Claus. For me, and this might offend some, I just it's, it's too much effort. I gotta go like convince my kid of something that doesn't exist and then reconvince them that I was just a good parent. For it's them. not just reconvincing, it's traumatizing them later after <laughs> they've fully bought in, telling them that it doesn't exist. What do you think? The plan that I have is uh, the only thing I'm thinking about is this year I'm going to get a gift from our uh, new baby to to the girls, trying to like help just uh, help them realize like this person's coming in the family because that's awesome. that's fine. Um, I love that. I love it's that. Like it's a it's a shock, right? Especially Georgia. She's the youngest now. She's going to become middle, right? Yes. I feel that bad for her. Like this is going to be a big change in her life <laughs> to the middle child. It's going to be a huge story, right? Totally. So trying to soften the blow a little bit. So Penny will for sure get it. Yeah, yeah. And so less Santa, more like that. I'm gonna, you know, she new the new baby girl is gonna be more of a the Santa. <laughs> it's just a 
psychological game yeah. I play. <laughs> the problem is you put yourself in some weird positions because Mallory's one of nine kids. So if we start telling Rayma, you know, like, just so you know, and we have, you know, hey, Santa's not real. And then they become that kid that ruins that for another family, you know, that puts you in a precarious position. I know. We had an oldest who never, we never talked about really Santa Claus one way or the other. And um, I got a couple calls from moms from the school bus. Your son told my kids oh, that get over it. Santa isn't real. So, yeah. It's all a part of living in community. Yeah. All right, after offending many people, we can hop right into our text this week. But, uh, man, what a gift it's been to just start walking through Genesis. One of the things that, as I've been studying for this week, you know, we're going to be finishing up in chapter 11, and then, you know, a big shift is coming in Genesis 12. But it almost seems redundant how much brokenness is just unpacked for us in... Uh, chapters 3 to 11. Like, it's just brokenness over brokenness over brokenness, sin. And uh, and we can't even escape it amidst a story of a man who is as righteous as any man that has lived so far. So maybe we can just talk about this man, Noah. What was so special about Noah? Because the tech is, text is very clear that Noah stands out. And the reason that he stands out is that he is righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Um, I'm just curious. I mean, I know it's speculation, but where is that coming from? And in light of all of the other people that have went before him, like how, how do you think this relationship started between Yahweh and Noah and I don't know I'm just I'm curious about it this first usage like Zedekiah uh, that could be it's a very good question uh, the word for righteous Zedekiah yeah Zedekiah um, I don't think it says it about Enoch but Enoch is the first hint of yes. someone again walking with God mm-hmm and Noah is from that line, so Enoch is the seventh in that generation from Abel, and Noah is the tenth. So maybe there's something that's just being passed down um, from that line that, that just continues, where there's this idea of walking with God, having relationship with God, yeah, fearing God, knowing God's heart, and family lines are going to become come into central stage here in chapter ten. Um, so maybe we could just talk about what's what's the importance of even the name Noah. What does that name mean, and why do names matter in that context more than they matter today? Well, first I want to go back to something that Dan just kind of mentioned under his breath. He said first usage. Oh yeah. So we want to just clarify what that is for everyone. So in the Hebrew Bible or even the Greek, if you have the first time a word is used, that's usually sets, it's like gold standard for what that word means in the text. And you can usually then play a little game where if you look up the Hebrew word and then you see all the places where it's mentioned in the Bible, it can kind of take you on like a treasure hunt. Um, So you're right, Dan, this is the first time the word righteous or zedek is used in the Bible. So maybe that means Noah is the gold standard or the first person who's described in this terminology. And I think, Rod, in your sermon, you talked about three people um, that are mentioned in Ezekiel, right? That are described as righteous. It was actually three words. Three words. Or, okay. Sorry, two words. Three people described with these two words. The uh, one is Zedek, which we're talking about right now, righteous. And then the other is Tamim, which is really translated wholeheartedness. So he was wholehearted. To God and righteous. So and what Daniel. Is Job. Job and Noah. What does righteous mean in the Bible? Because I think sometimes we mm-hmm. we think of righteousness in like a legalistic sense. And in the way we use the word today, like he's he does everything perfectly. He's a right living. He's a righteous person. But I, I think, and I always get actually a little bit confused by the nuances of this word. But it's a little bit yeah. different. Am I right? Yes. There is mm-hmm. a book. Um, I don't know if you guys like this book or not. Roy Blizzard. Did you ever get Mishnah? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the, the words Mishnah and the words of Jesus. Roy Blizzard 
kind of tries to track down the etymology of the word. And um, he kind of argues that benevolence would be probably the baseline for tzedakah, where you are somebody who disadvantages yourself or somebody else and tracks that practically. Um, so it's an interesting case study, especially when you get to their greater culture, um, when, when Jesus says things in Matthew 6, when you do your act of righteousness, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, but when you give to the poor. So the, the way that that sentence right, defines the righteousness act is a giving to the poor. It's a disadvantaging yourself. Um, all the way through to Romans what, 1, 17, 18, right? With the, the righteousness of God is revealed through the cross, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's obviously, I know we're getting into a really big topic about what is the righteousness of God, but he, like I said, Roy Blizzard kind of tries to paint at least less of a moral purity, like a vague, ambiguous picture of like just right living. Right living, it doesn't do enough to really define righteousness for me. But when you start talking about disadvantaging, you know, selflessly, self-donating, disadvantaging yourself for others, and map that back to Noah, it's a story where he left everything like for this for this story he left everything that he knew everything that he was doing right like it's it's going to take a very long time to accomplish this and then even beyond that a very long time to re to rebuild this whole thing is this story of self donation and so maybe there's something to sort of self describing uh, within the story itself to your point Trig. Nailed it. That's how first yeah. usage kind of that's usually. A that's a great works. definition of tzedek, tzedekah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to me, too, that Hebrews obviously points to Noah in, in the hall of faith and says that he's saved by faith, right? Yep. And so it was his faith that saved him, which is interesting to me because that means that he was living amongst a faithless generation. Because I would assume that God would have saved anyone else that had had faith, but he saves only Noah. Mm-hmm. Who saved Ham, Sham, and Japheth? <laughs> well, They're of course, of course like, but, but it's specifically talking about <laughs> Noah in this regard. And so I think it also, we need to be clear that this is something that God is, this righteousness is something that God is imputing into. That's obviously a highbrow theological, theological word, but there's nothing in and of Noah in himself that makes him unique from humanity. I mean, obviously we see after the flood, Noah falls right back into patterns of sin. And so he's, he's not special in a sense, but he does do one thing. And the text is very clear about it. And that is that he's obedient in 622, 75, 9 and verse 16. It says that Noah did all that God commanded him. And Maybe we could just talk about that theme of obedience because, you know, in some ways this word obedience has become like a curse word in our culture. You know, if you were to say like, be an obedient child, you know, people would look at you like you're from the 1800s. And yet obedience is God's love language. And that was the thing that stood out to the Lord in Noah's life that made him unique. Yeah, I, I think that what you're kind of alluding to right now is... We would, we could easily just look at the world that uh, Noah lives and see all the violence and the evil that's being done. And then there's this one man named Noah who is so much better than everybody else. And then think, okay, that's what the Bible is about. Like, you know, good people and bad people. But there's a reason why... Noah is good. The Bible does want us to see this. And I mentioned this when, when I preached, is that these chapter headings that we have in our Bible did not exist. And the chapter headings that are already in the text themselves are these, this clause. This is the account of that, that is saying the next chapter. And so we get the third one of those. This is the account of uh, in our chapter 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah. 
And so now chapter 3, beginning the story of Noah. But right before that, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that's how chapter 2, the way they read it, ends. It's God is extending grace to this man, Noah. And so the goodness of Noah, really, this is a man that knows the grace of God. This is the same word in Hebrew. Yeah. Yeah, Yes, exactly. Grace and favor. So he's experienced that grace. God has lavished that grace upon him upon Noah and the result of that what flows then out of a, a grace-filled life is someone who's wholehearted and righteous and radically generous someone yeah. who disadvantages himself for for other people yeah. so no and that's super important I just wanted to talk about that briefly because I think the order of those two things really matters because the moment that we flip that we become self-righteous yeah the moment that we obey and now we look to God to essentially bless our obedience because of our obedience, that is the markings of self-righteousness. Now you owe me. Now we've come full circle to what Dan was talking about in Matthew 6. Like this is, Jesus is is addressing that attitude. Yeah. You know, people who are (laughs) self-righteous, who think they're so great, you know, because they perform these acts of religiosity, which includes tzedakah, you know, generosity. But they're doing it for themselves, which is why God can peer through all of our acts and get right down to our heart. And now we're off in a whole other world, but. No, but that's. But I, I do think though that, you know, this really is about the goodness of God more than the goodness of Noah, but it doesn't take away that Noah is someone because he's experienced the grace of God who's, who's living out a good life. Yeah. And, and yet as good of a life as Noah is, you know, then you come to <laughs> Genesis 9, you know, and he's not perfect. Yeah, so maybe we can just move through chapter 9 now that we've kind of set some of the groundwork for who Noah is. It's just so crazy how obeying God, it, it just so it makes his life so much easier. Mm. Explain that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying you would think uh, if you were in sort of a transactional mindset that the more you obey God, the more blessing comes into your life. But yeah. the more he obeys God, the wackier things get, you know, and and it's all a part of the plan, but it, it should set our expectations to uh, at least account for, you know, obedience isn't always going to make things easier and smoother for your life. I mean, it's living for him in a box with bunch of animals for <laughs> you know a month plus and well let's even talk to, about before that does the text actually say how long it took noah to build the ark well this is something that it doesn't say but he's 500 at one point when he has his sons he's 600 when the water you know comes and recedes so during that time this is where the story lives so how long would it have taken is is some people guess 50, some people guess I have, more. I have 120 in my mind, 120 years. Well, that's what God said. The, the life of man will be 120 years. Is that chapter 5 at the okay. end? Was that in your text? God was grieving and said at this point, the life of man will be 120 years yeah. instead. And some people go, that's the countdown to the flood. But when it says, you go and build an ark for you and your sons, it sort of is indicating his sons had already been born, but could just be an anachronism too. I mean, maybe it did take him a hundred years. Even if it was one year. Yeah. One year. But let's just say it was a decade or yeah. decades of building this ark. Yeah. I mean, that's a public, he's a public spectacle at that moment. I've been to that place in Ohio. Trig, have you, you've probably been there, haven't you? You, you live <laughs> the right creation, down there. The crea- that's a it's spectacle. in Kentucky, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right I, the I actually never went there. <laughs> I've never been but, there. But uh, Godfrey. We stopped there on our own. Show me from, uh, you know, Godfrey was here. Uh-huh. And he went down there. And he came back and he looked at me. He's like, he's just shaking his head. He's like, Americans can do whatever they want. <laughs> when they yeah. put their mind to it. Yeah. I'm just like, Tower is it Valley. big? And he's like, it's humongous. It's so big. I, I, yeah, I mean, I'd heard about it. I had yeah. never went down there. Um, but he loved it. And I guess they're going to try to build the Tower of Babel. So huh. they're doing it like according to specification, all the data that's in the yeah, text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the ark down there is built to all the data that they yeah. have. Um, 
But anyway, um, okay, so he also, when they, ah, that's irrelevant. That's a, it's interesting to me that when the waters dry up, I think it's around like 150 days that they're still in the ark. Right, yeah, they're trapped in there for a while before they can so, come out. The end just showed me a picture of this thing. I, first of all, I didn't even know this existed. And are, are you kidding me? You didn't know that existed? I did not know this existed. RJ, you're in the room. Did you know this thing existed? Yeah, I did. That's kind of wacky. Let me see, let me see. Road trip? Yeah, seriously. Holy cow. Yeah, no, I never went down there. But, I mean, yeah. So just Google it. If you're wondering what, what we're looking yeah, at, yeah. Ark Encounter, Ark Encounter, Ark Encounter Creation Museum in Kentucky. But anyway, so okay, so, so it's not? Just to be clear, I'm kind of a stickler about this. It's place. an encounter. Oh, there really okay. isn't any museum pieces there. <laughs> I'm a big museum fan, so anyways, it's a bone, no. it's a bone I have to pick with them. Okay, well, anyway, so we get to Chapter 9, and Chapter 9 kind of mirrors Chapter 1 in a lot of ways, and you get a lot of the same language, and you even touched on that briefly. I think, Dan, but there's this mandate. Neil definitely did. Yeah, yeah, but you even hit on it too, this be fruitful and multiply. Right. Um, this idea of ruling and subduing a little bit is coming back into the picture. We even get image of God language again in 6, right? It's God is reestablishing, hey, human beings matter and the sanctity of their life matters mm -hmm. and do not shed the blood of human beings. And even the way that we now eat animals, you're not to eat them the way that the animals eat other animals. You do not eat them when, uh, when their lifeblood is in them. So there's kind of this reestablishment. What is going on in chapter nine and why do we need this rehashing of almost the creation mandate? Did you have any ideas about that? I think I don't, but I do think that God is consistent, and I think that in this is an opportunity that's unlike any other opportunity in the story, where you're you're having a whole a vision cast of a of a culture that He's wanting to reemphasize, which is kind of what I was trying to get at with the "be fruitful and multiply" is a literal phrase, but it's also used metaphorically or figuratively throughout the Hebrew scriptures in places like Isaiah, Isaiah 54 is probably everybody's one of their top five Isaiah chapters, single barren woman. He does reference Noah, right, in, in that chapter, but he also says, I will make you increase and multiply. And it's not just ethnic. It's you, the faith the, the faith family, right, that, that you just did this, this is your story, and I want this to increase and multiply over the world. And so with all of the you know, what do they call that, uh, throwbacks or, or whatever, you know, the stuff that's built into it to, to sort of reference, like, rebuilding creation. It's, I'm glad that there's consistency with God's heart in that, but then also there's a faith element that's being multiplied and increased. Yeah, I think that's really true because if we go back to Genesis chapter 6, well, go back even further to Genesis 2 or end 1, 1 and 2, when he looks at everything and says that it's good, and then he says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Well, the exact opposite has happened. It's so consistent because chapter 6 says, and this is when God's stating the evil and the violence in the world. He says he looks upon the earth, so he sees the earth, and says that it's corrupt in his sight. And then it says it's not filled with what they're supposed to fill it with, but it's filled with violence. So Dan, yes, not just reproducing in a genetic sense, but they were supposed to fill the earth with his kingdom and the goodness. And that's exactly what he says is not happening, has not happened. And then he decides to do the flood because he looks on the earth, sees that it's all terrible and wicked, and then it's filled with violence as opposed to the elements of what he wants the world to be filled with. Yeah. So can we go there a little bit? Because I wanted to come back to what we originally talked about. Why do you think that it's so important for God to establish the sinfulness of humanity in these first 11 chapters? Why is that just the theme that is threaded through everything? Because as we come to chapter 11, it can almost feel like depressing in a sense mm -hmm. disappointing yeah for sure i think that's the word that i like to use about that when you get to, to 12 
and you have a call for Lak Laka, it's in contrast, I think, to all the other directions that you can walk. And so I think the concentric circles that are all, that are drawn around all of the disappointing uh, stories here kind of do represent all the disappointing options that we can devote our lives to and worship and serve. Um, but finally, you get to that point with Abraham where it's like, now I want you to walk in this direction, right? And become the father of faith, right? And and so for me, I think that is an important thing to establish in the first section of the first book, right? Like there's always <clears throat> going to be options and they're all going to be disappointing. <laughs> and we all know this and we need to know that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're out of the garden, expelled from the garden and first story is Cain and Abel. So you're already like, talk about disappointment. And you just see a family in chaos. And then the next story, I think Lamech is soon there, thereafter. And you sense now that Lamech's evil is more than just limited to his family, but now he's bringing it to his whole community. That 70 times, you know, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back that much. And, you know, you just keep going in this narrative and the communal chaos then becomes institutional. And by the end, it's global. And who's responsible for that? humanity but that's not what god created humanity to be god actually created humanity to be made like him to be him his heart hands feet face to the universe to bring shalom and so therefore the disappointment is great but it all points back to humanity and really their choice to live apart from god rebellion against god to not go god's way and you get these little flickers of light, right? Like Abel, you know, his sacrifice. You get Enoch who walked with God. Then we come to Noah and he's walking with God and he's blameless in righteousness. And it's like, but in the midst of this, it's, it's global uh, chaos and God does something about it. And that's what the flood is. You know, it's God almost like saying, Let's hit the reset button here and let's start over. And yeah. then with Noah, okay, you're my new Adam. Let's go. Exactly. But knowing that Noah is is going to be just as wicked as Adam, because you know, first or chapter three, we learn that there will be one that will crush the serpent's head, and for that to be true, he can't wipe out the whole earth, and so he's got to pick one. But that one comes from Adam, so he knows he's not going to be perfect. But let me ask you this. Yeah. Let's say we are reading this story for the very first time, mm -hmm. okay? And it wasn't this big book, but someone was just giving you, all right, here's the first page of the story, read it, and here's a second. And yeah. by the time you get to nine, and it starts with, then God blessed Noah and his son saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. I think that we would think, okay. Oh, totally. It's all gonna be good. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. It's all, the problem's been solved. But then by the but, end, but of, the this end chapter, of the very it, chapter, yeah. that's where I was going to go. But I was going to go back to what you said, which is we do have these flickers of light. And one of the most powerful flickers of light, even before we get to chapter 12, is right here in chapter 9. And it begins with God establishing a covenant. And this is the first time. You talk, talk about first usage. I think this is first usage of that word, correct? Mm -hmm. it's the okay, it so... Is the first covenant. Maybe we could talk about that word covenant because it's extremely important for um, understanding the whole, the entirety of the scriptures, but especially the Old Testament, because there's many covenants that God is about to set up, and this is the first of, of many. So what does covenant mean? More than an agreement, more than a promise between two people. It's two parties who are going to bind themselves in relationship to each other. Um, and so when God makes this covenant, he, he's binding his heart to, to Noah, um, but it goes beyond Noah. It's with all creation. God loves his creation. And he's not going to just, you know, roll it up and throw it away like a piece of trash. Um, he, he, he is, he loves it. And he's going to enter into a covenant with it. And as we continue to read the story, 
His goal is to repair it, to restore it, to reconcile it to himself. Got anything else to add there, Libby or Dan? There's different types of covenants. You know, that would imply different expectations. If there's two people that are involved in the covenant versus one, sometimes like a king would make a covenant over or or an against like a, Mm -hmm. a weaker, um, nation or something like that. So mm-hmm. sometimes that can help understand the different dynamics of the covenants, right, that are made, since we don't have a ton of that. I mean And that would be true here in this case, you know, you have the ultimate king of the universe coming to a human. To a weaker a weaker yeah, and a greater. A greater the greater coming to what do they weaker. call that? A vassal um suzerain suzerain, suzerain relationship. Yeah. So when you think about that for Noah, why does God establish this covenant with him at this time, right after the flood, do you think? Well, what did you think about that point that I made? I never really thought about that before. Like, why wouldn't God let the fear and the the terror haunt uh, (laughs) haunt the, the ages to come? I may, I may not. I could do the flood thing again. If you, if you, if you don't act right, like I could do that again, and let obedience come from sort of a fear of God, like a fear of punishment um, standpoint. But right away, like the first thing <laughs> he does is like, just so you know, I'm not going to do this again. I promise you, I'm not going to do this again. I am making a binding like covenant with you and everybody i'm not going to do this again it causes a in the worldly sense a counterproductive uh you know thing in a worldly sense i'd be like this this is a waste of that whole (laughs) that whole story because you want you know the the fear to to get the most bang for your buck out of this right you know but he says I, I want to promise you I'm not going to do that, which then my conclusion is that that would elicit obedience that comes out of belief in the promise um, that he made rather than like a fear-based belief, which is a, is a motivating, that is a thing you can use to motivate. Um, but I think we've, most of us have come to the conclusion that when you're motivated by love and motivated by trust, um, it's a much more genuine, like you're you're coming from a much more genuine place, which I think plays into kind of to me my interpretation of why he did that. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, Paul says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, and this text is first and foremost about God, who God is, His character. Yep. You know, and and I think with it, like. There's always two sides to God's character, which makes God, I don't want to use a Greek word like perfect, but he is perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. And, you know, he starts, this text starts off with he blessed Noah and his family, but then it also says uh, that he cursed. You know, he curses who? Uh, Cursed be Canaan. Canaan. Oh, no, that's actually Noah doing that here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that quote is is true or not about Napoleon, but do you guys know that one where the, the that's attributed to Napoleon Bonaparte, where he says, "Like men like me, Charlemagne, Alexander, um, we have ruled countries through fear, but Jesus is different than everybody else because with just one word of love, thousands of men would give their lives for him or whatever, you know, and just whoever truly came up with that, I don't know, I can't find an actual." Yeah. source on that personally so just want to be forthright about that but i do like the quote either way mm-hmm. <laughs> because it talks about how powerful um trusting believing in love yeah. is yeah. Uh, you know over over and against just subduing people out of fear yeah no and i think god's love is all over the first 11 chapters and it stands in stark contrast to the sinfulness and yeah. disobedience and rejection of that love by the very people that God has just lavished his love on, right? If God is self-actualized in the in the Trinity, he, you know, love exists before he even creates. God didn't 
create the world so that he could express love, but he already had love within that relationship, then his creation is an expression of his love. And so this covenant is also an establishment of God's love. I actually love how Kent Hughes puts it. He says, the covenant is the self-motivated promise of an unconditional mercy throughout human history. And then that made me think about 1 John, because we were talking about, could God have just hung this threat of the flood over their heads? Well, I guess he could have, but God was loving. And 1 John says that God is love and that there is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. And then he says, well, what's the response of that? We actually now love because God first loved us. And so to me, when we talk about this word covenant, it's always an establishment of God's first love. Mm-hmm. And so for, for Noah as well, right, we're told that Noah had favor in the eyes of the Lord. It always starts with God. And I think that that's really important when we talk about the language of covenant, because when we get that order reversed is when a lot of bad things happen. I just think as us yeah. as human beings, would you agree, agree with that? Mm-hmm. That it's always extremely important to remember this God first loved and then we love. Um, Amen. Because the moment we reverse that, we become God and now God owes us something. Causing performance, trying to be good enough. Yeah. Perfection. Do you like me now, God? Did I do enough? And God doesn't like that either. He's not like that because we're not like that. Okay, God's not. I wouldn't. We just live in a time where motivation is everything. Like we we understand this. I don't want to have a wife who's just afraid of me. Therefore, she loves me. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't work. It's not. That's not interesting to me. That's not meaningful. That That's a way to control people. And I don't think God wants that either. I don't think he just wants to know like. Now that I have you guys under control, <laughs> you know, or whatever, it's he. He also, I think, invented this. You know, this thing where we love out of love, right? And so we act out of love or whatever. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But I think if we look, not but, I agree with that. New sentence: If we look at the story of Noah and the flood, and God saying, "I'll never do that again." And Noah being relieved by that in a sense, you know, that this is not the kind of God that you want to be. Um, the flip side of that, it's just as miraculous and benevolent of God that in the midst of his judgment, he provided the ark. He provided a way to go through the judgment mm. and to be saved. Exactly. So God could say, I'll flood it again, or even if he did, I'll still save you. I'll still find a way. Like... I don't tolerate violence. I don't tolerate evil. I don't tolerate this total depravity of behavior on my earth. And so I'm I'm going to judge it, maybe not in this way, but I'm also showing you miraculously how you and I can partner together and how you can be saved in spite of so my you, being yeah. true to my own character. And Noah's name means rest. And so um, if we go back to the naming of Noah, Um, I think it's in chapter five, where his father says, maybe this one will give us rest from the cursed ground that we've had to toil so hard after. So I see in that almost a yearning for that um, Genesis 3.15, like like we want to be done with this curse, like we need rest. Very profound. And then at the end of creation, there's rest. So we have this Noah who's named Noah because they want rest. And then the rest is actually, and this is just my thoughts, okay, that in the midst of the judgment of God um, on the earth, because he can't tolerate evil, is that you are cradled in his hands. And you are, you, by being righteous, by being relationship, by speaking his love language of obedience and accepting his grace and mercy and his path, you're like cradled in this ark and you're saved. And so by Noah's obedience, and then you brought this up so well, Dan, um, of Moses also being cradled in the midst of a life-threatening situation. 
then ultimately the ark will be Jesus. We'll be cradled there in the midst of his judgment. I mean, God is not, his character doesn't change. He's going to judge, but there's place. He didn't know what an ark was, which that is, I've never thought about this till this moment while you're talking about that. It's, it's not going to be, salvation isn't going to come through something that you can do that you know how to do. Yeah. Because if, Maybe that's why this story is so meaningful in that in that sense, because the ark isn't something that Noah did to save himself because he knows how to build arks. It was God's idea, and it was not something you would have known how to do. And so that's why it mirrors Jesus so well, because it wasn't he didn't do it right. in a way that we could exactly. have figured out, right? And to see so, that as the hands of God, the ark is the hands of God. I mean, isn't that how Neil ended his sermon was like, you have the choice to put yourself in that place. Or you can put yourself in the place of not being there. And that's kind of why the New Testament can say about Noah that he preached righteousness, re- righteousness yeah. and repentance to his people. And I like to but think, I don't even think he preached wait, a sermon. Well, I like to think anyone could have come in the ark. I mean, that that's my would point. have accepted it because the text tells us specifically that God shut the door. Noah never shut the door on the ark. Yeah. And wow. anyone can receive, through faith in Christ, the same protection for God's judgment. And that's where I love that Neil connected it. And, and you just sparked a lot of thoughts in me. So this will be a miracle if I can organize them. But I oh, always wondered, God. like, think about how confused John the Baptist is that Jesus has to be baptized. And I was always kind of confused. I'm like, well, it's not the baptism. He's not repenting of anything. But what if it is Jesus saying... And sorry, I haven't studied this. I must go through the waters of judgment first. I'm actually setting the precedent. I'm going to go through the waters of judgment first. And now I set up the example so that when you are baptized, you are identifying with the fact that I am your ark through the judgment of God, that I provide that protection and I carry you through, but it's only because of the work that I did. And it's something that only I can do. And... It just goes back to what you just said. Well, it's like the incredible love and grace of God that he's providing protection from his own judgment. Well, I this all connects to Dan's la- last the point in the sermon. And he's providing yeah. remedy for the judgment because he knows, because he loves so much, he has to be true to himself. Exactly. Yeah. He, he wants to provide a way. Idea, yeah, he can't good. contradict himself. He has to be just, but he's also loving. And so God in his divine omnipotence and his creativity comes out this way. Go ahead. You said it reminds you of Dan's last point. Yeah, your last point, Dan, I thought was amazing with just the the rainbow, which is how we understand it, almost like from all the fairy tales we read as kids, but it's not called a rainbow. It's actually called a bow. And the bow is actually a weapon. Every time that word is used in the Bible, it's a weapon. And pointed straight at heaven. It's pointed straight at heaven. I don't think that's a coincidence because I think God is saying my bow is not going to be pointed at earth, but that doesn't mean that I'm no longer a just God, but it's giving us hints where the story is ultimately going to go, which is why (laughs) that ark, like we need to be in that ark because even where the ark is going to go in the story, you know, it's all going to end Christ. Well, and that's why I love, Rod, that you said the story's ultimately about God because it's completely revealing his character. He's going to judge. He's going to provide a way for you to pass through the judgment. Even before that, judgment. though, he loves this world. Exactly. And, but yet he's, they're giving us hints of how he's going to provide a way, like yep. you said with the boat. Like the whole picture of who God is is exemplified, actually, in this story. And I don't know if this is reading too much in the sign that God chose, but you can't have a rainbow without having a storm, clouds, darkness, mm. and then also sun. And yeah, I mean. And isn't that the cross? Mm-hmm. It's the whole thing. It's, it's, the sto- it's a it, rainbow. It, yeah, that stands between these two realities of unbelievable grace and warmth and it's the a love storm. of God. But it's yeah, the storm of a, God exactly. fell on on Himself in Christ. It's so beautiful, and then baptism becomes so much more beautiful yeah. 
as well when we i just loved where neil went there but yeah. and i loved how dan yeah. connected though that sign totally. of the rainbow with mm. the sign of the cross oh it's fun when these things just did come you, to you uh, in the moment did you hear my rich mullins quote on this one remember rich mullins? Say, Give it to say, me. I, yeah I'm, i can see the covenant colors the sun and the rain are woven against the blue of the sky and i know if we live we will live by his promise i know he who made it and i'm sure that he would not lie isn't that, yeah. I, I remember that's I love a, Rich that is such a good line. Very so good. I see the I, I, I remember that song too. Do you know? Mullins. You remember that yes, song? For sure. Rich Mullins. I do not, <laughs> but it sounds great. Well, and I but, do think it's interesting that the when he talks about the covenant in chapter nine here, and he talks about the sign of the covenant being the rainbow, that it's there for him him to remember. Mm-hmm. It's not for us to remember. It, it says, "I'll put my." sign in the sky so that when I look on it, and this is God talking, I'll remember to never flood the earth again in that way. It's a totally different take than what I've thought of it before, that like we're supposed to, and I'm sure we are also we all need comforted by that promise, yeah. but that God himself is saying, I'm, I'm just not going to do that again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Love that. It's a great place to end in that section of the text, but I want to move forward to uh, part of the text that we uh, didn't spend a ton of time on on Sunday, um, and that's the second half of chapter 9, which kind of stands in stark contrast to this beautiful— this story is coming on the heels of this beautiful promise that God gives, this covenant that he establishes, this symbol that he puts in the sky. Everything seems right in the world, and then— we get this kind of weird story where Noah plants himself a vineyard. He creates a nice little Riesling. A little he too gets, much rest. Yeah, a little too much rest. <laughs> gets liquored up, strips off his clothes, lays naked, is ashamed. It's almost the Garden 2.0 again. Yeah. Then we have his three sons. One of them does something super shameful. The other two actually act as a covering. So what's going on here? Why is the story even in here? And what happened with Noah to go from this beautiful covenant Mm -hmm. ceremony, essentially, that God sets up in the sky to... Do you want to start with particulars, why it's there, or big picture, why it's there? Let's start big, and then we'll move to the particulars. Okay, I think... It's letting us know where the human race is going. Yeah. And it's also setting us up for the Toledot, the, mm-hmm. the generations of the Toledot is how they do chapters, but it's also shining the spotlight on the story within the story, which is going to be through a people. And so it's, it's at big picture level, it's, it's setting us up for one, where the whole human race is going to go, which is where it has just been. It's not going to get better. It's going to be just as bad. Yeah. But within that bad, there's going to be another flicker of light. There's going to be another family. There's going to be another story that's going to totally. emerge by which God, nope, I'm not doing the flood thing ever again. I'm doing a new thing. But that new thing is still going to end with new creation, and it's going to be through yeah. this particular family. That's the cosmic thing, yeah. thing that's going on. Could I give two thoughts and then see what you think about these two thoughts? Well, the first is that this, in a lot of ways, to me, is a re- recapitulation of chapter three. You have you know, Adam and Eve are naked and ashamed, and here is Noah naked and ashamed. Um, what you you got something to add there? No, I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm just imagining things. No, I, I was oh just my. thinking. Oh. It it would be like, I thought you were gonna say, and then Adam <laughs> cursed his son or whatever and blamed him for the fall or something like that. Like, no, but and so you can only go so far with the okay. We keep talking about these glimmers of hope, but this is what's super interesting to me. God provides the covering through garments of skin. Yeah. After the fall in three, but who covers Noah after his sin? His two sons. Yeah. And there's almost this flicker of hope that maybe we can actually, in faith, start to reflect God. Yeah, you have 
um, a mm-hmm. sampling of humanity that's starting to look redemptive. That's, in a sense, it's yeah, definitely I can see yeah. that. And it's almost like a choice is set up. You can either be like Ham or you yeah. can be like Shem or Japheth. Yeah, because Ham saw and told. <laughs> yeah, and that's what did he and what did he see? He saw nakedness and shame. Oh. And our culture's been doing that ever since. We see and tell. Right? I mean, that's just what we do. We, we, right. we see something we that's shameful and yeah. we exploit it. Uh, we prostitute it. We traffic it. Uh, we blog about it. Yeah. We judge it. Um, but, look, but that look at how that stands in contrast to the two brothers. They don't see and tell. No, they cover. They their, cover. They cover their dad's yeah. shame. And we've talked about this from the beginning of Genesis that all of life is a choice between shalom and chaos, propelling shalom or propel, creating shalom or propelling chaos. And you see that right here. You see that the two brothers are bringing shalom to a situation. They're bringing, you know, a solution. They're bringing a covering, and the other is just expounding the chaos or increasing the chaos that is occurring. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think the other thing that's interesting to me is that this is happening, again, on the heels of uh, immense blessing. And you could say comfort in light of the discomfort that he just walked through. God asked him to do this really difficult thing. And then they go through this traumatic experience, which is the flood. They come out the other side. He's very blessed. And then he sets up this garden, a new form of a garden, this vineyard. And all seems to be going well. And in that place of comfort is actually where disobedience comes in. Whereas before, when he was ridiculed and people didn't understand what he was doing and he was acting in faith, um, he was able to stand up in righteousness. And I think that that's a warning for us as well, that it's actually sometimes when we're facing opposition, it's easier to stand in the face of opposition for the Lord. But in comfort, we can be almost lulled to sleep in our faith and be put at an even higher risk to fall into, especially things that are sensual, you know? Yeah. Okay, so let me ask you this. The movie... Noah, has anybody seen the movie? <laughs> yeah, yes. Dan's talked to me yes. like six I'm times. I'm the only person I've, I've ever met who likes likes. I liked it. I, oh, you did? I, I, I liked it. it. I did too. I mean, it takes liberties, but I I, I like. love right. the creative. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, okay. I haven't seen it, so. It, 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 this is what it does. It puts you in Noah's shoes. And post-flood, so try to get in his shoes. Think about all the things that like we take for granted today. They're all related to people. Everything that we really enjoy in some capacity is related to other people. Now all of a sudden, other people don't exist. They're gone. Like I, I sometimes think this guy's depressed. Yeah. PTSD. I mean, think about what he's actually been through. He, he made it through, but to what? Not, yeah, me and Dan talked about that. And I, 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 I that doesn't excuse anything no, of here. Not. Um, but it does make make me wonder. And you know, again, depression is a part of life. You know, I think every one of us at this table could all give testimony to seasons of depression, moments of depression. Sure. You know, and and. And what do you do in those seasons of, de- of depression? I think the psalmist shows us, you know, what, what, what we should be doing. Um, one, we should be honest about it, admit it. Um, we should be able to express it. We should be able to live with it. But in all of that, we should then also, our eyes should be directed to God. And we should be putting our hope in him. Mm-hmm. And so that has to be probably lacking here. For sure. Oh, and it's so easy yeah. and it's so tempting to go to numbing agents, you know, and it's so telling. I mean, we're 11 <clears throat> chapters into the Bible and one of the greatest enticing ways to numb is through alcohol and we're here and this is his sin of choice. Let me just numb out. And why do you say maybe? Uh, well, I mean, it's complicated. I mean, there's no Torah. I mean, there's this is an old story. It, one way of looking at it is he has PTSD and he... he, he he plays into that. Another way is looking at a victory. He made it through the war, you know, and he's on the other side. And you could say maybe he was celebrating. And in that celebration, wine gladdens the heart. And and then he 
he he found himself in this situation. To me, you can paint it in light of he did chose to do something sinful or he didn't he maybe choose to do something sinful and something happened and i don't know necessarily the motivation behind are that. are you saying that he maybe didn't set out to do something sinful but it just kind of happened as he was i'm just not sure how to necessarily i like the theories about how he got to this place but that's the right word dan they're um, theories we're just yeah we're you know what I mean? that was a, yeah, yeah. they are they're, it's they're all theories. speculation but it's hard to call necessarily if you're just re, like rod if you're if you're washing up on a desert island and these pages came up and you don't have like future texts that talk about substance abuse per se you don't have that maybe noah does yeah, not yeah, have yeah, that yeah, right yeah. and so i'm not saying anything beyond what you're just experiencing with this and i do though like the disappointment is there yeah. the drama is there um and and i got this from um ellen davis the uh she's a historian at duke and she says that there just isn't in all of ancient literature anything like these mm -hmm. stories where um in the ancient near east you have Heroes, um, Tiglat Pileser the Third. Um, you have different types of literature that always put the heroes up um, on a pedestal. Yeah, it's true. Um, in, in almost commonly like found in palace annals, monumental inscriptions. Such accounts are heroic first-person narratives about conquests, public works which the ruler claims to have accomplished personally with divine endorsement, right? So this is kind of a, a story like Noah. Now, in the Hebrew scriptures, she says is a complete departure from the motif. Right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. Right here in Genesis 9. Because there is a, like, I it's mean, humbling. there's this Garrett like myth, too, I think, that has the father and the three sons. Mm -hmm. It's similar, mm -hmm. but it's different in the sense that the two sons actually act in a Christ-like way. Yeah. Oh, so see. I think in ancient literature yeah. even, it's Moses is writing this, right? We all know that. He's presenting something beautiful that maybe wasn't super common. I've, Another way, a third way. I, I think the big thing, though, is just his nakedness. Yeah. That connects us to Genesis Exactly. 3. It connects us all. You're right. And then in the nakedness is shame. You know, totally. it's, it's the concept of shame. And so this chapter ends with righteous Noah in a place of shame. Yeah. I think that's what the Bible wants us to see. I agree. Well, no matter who the hero is, we all have an identity. There, there's nobody that's left where there's no question about whether or not I'm like that person or not, which helps me to identify with the story. Because if you read stories where heroes never fail or have any like solidarity, like any connections between me, it's easier to just say, well, good for him. I have a drinking problem. <laughs> good for him. I have a shame problem. Good for him. I have, the, you know, I could never be like that. And when, and you can't when you have this the, the the motif in the hebrew scriptures where they're like they are like you it does also help encourage you to say i i also then can um you know a normal man what does james say just a normal man man right? just like us how about if we just us, elijah go Ray. through let's go through all the examples right now that come to our mind david Right. I mean, David, that story Murder. just ascends Moses. so fast, and then it descends. Speak to the rock, Moses. Moses. Struck it. You know? Struck it. I mean, he didn't make it to the promised land. Yep. Well, and I think if we can go back to this. The South. New Testament, you have Peter, you have Paul, um, the disciples. Yeah, sorry, I interrupted you, Lib. No, it's totally fine. But if we go back to the, for me, the comforting thing is, the salvation mode of the ark being that God saved people. Like he chose to save Noah. He knows Noah's character. He knows what Noah's like. He chose to save Japheth and Shem. He also chose to save Ham. Like all those people came through the flood by the grace of God. So people like that 
you know, are have the grace of God just poured out all over them. To me, that's comforting. Like, it's not like God saved like the five perfect people and they were always perfect. It's like he chose this family that was righteous and doing their best and saved them. And even if he knew they were going to make mistakes still, he didn't perfect them. He just saved them. Yeah. And that's why I love Tim Keller's paradigm where he always said, we can't forget. Many churches preach the gospel as if it's good advice, but the gospel is not advice. It's good news. And you respond to good news differently than you respond to advice. Advice is all about how you perform better, you do better, you be better. Whereas good news is something has happened. Now just respond to it. And the reality is there are no heroes in the scriptures except for one, and that's Jesus. And Jesus is the only one that can carry us through the watery judgment of God. And uh, yeah, he's our only hope. And all of the scriptures find their end in him. And until you see that anybody that you put your hope in other than Christ will fail you, you're not at a place where you can actually in humility receive who Christ is and what he has done for you. Amen. Like, he's it. Noah, David, Solomon, doesn't matter. It's not enough. Mm -hmm. They're not good enough. It's more than he's it. He's beautiful. Yeah. Everything about him is beautiful. Who he is, how he goes about saving us, redeeming us, just beautiful. And it's hilarious how, like, something so effective as, you know, we'll go back to the alcohol thing. I think that it's, it's interesting to me that Alcoholics Anonymous is one of the most successful programs to help rehabilitate people from addiction. Um, and we've, they've sought to like remove Christianity from it, but they can't get past the first step, which is that like part of receiving faith in Christ and growing and healing from the sins that we've committed against others and the sins that have been committed against us. Cause the reality is that's what's happening in this chapter. Noah just received this covenant promise. He sins, but then he's sinned against. And isn't that our life? That it's just this constant mixture of God's blessing and then people sinning against us, but then we're sinning against others. Um, completely for- forgot where I was going, but there was a thought there. <laughs> you have to admit that, you have a problem. Oh yeah, yeah. That yeah. there's there's yeah. actually step. beauty. There's right. actually beauty in that first step, which is I am completely and utterly powerless against this disease, which is alcoholism. But the reality is, all human beings are completely and utterly powerless against the disease that is sin. Yeah. And it descends from our great 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 grandparents, Adam and Eve, and it comes all the way down to us, and we're still infected with it. And that first step is key for any of the other steps to follow. Mm-hmm. And then there's the hope of healing when yeah. we do that. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. it requires the humility to first accept that powerlessness. So where are we going in Genesis? Where is this thing headed? Well, you're, you're next, I think, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I am. Where is it going? <laughs> well, it's interesting. Um, it's going in a really interesting direction. Maybe I'll leave it at that. But I think that we're going to see a lot of names and we're going to see this thing spread. And a, a, lar- a tall, very, very tall building, just in case there's a flood. <laughs> yeah. Which I won't be able to mention that. Um, so that's an interesting point to be made. We're going towards the Tower of Babel, and I was talking to Dan this or last week, and there's an interesting theory, and we can call it a theory, right? Unless you think that there's grounds for it. There's just, there's a very tall building. There's a very tall building is all I'm saying. It's it's a tall building and that's striking to me in light of all of the short buildings that (laughs) maybe could have been made and washed away. (laughs) Dan's thought is that potentially they're doing this out of fear because they don't, which I agree they're doing it out of fear. Or rebellion. Well, for sure, rebellion, but I'm, but that it actually, they're thinking about, wow, we just had this, you know, there's this flood and it's in their cumulative mindset. Have a place where we can go if it happens. happens. Mm. It's interesting. Um, Well, I think too, um, just to practically 
bring this to, I don't know if we're wrapping up. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. We can wrap um, up. Jesus says that the end, the end of days will be like the days of Noah. And so we should be all building arcs. I loved what you said, Dan, at church on Sunday. It's like we all have opportunities to um, empirically build an arc, not actually build an arc, but we have the capacity to build all kinds of arcs that reflect the salvation of God through his judgment and through wicked and evil times. And you brought up some great examples of amazing people in our church body. We have a great church full of people who are anxious to spread the kingdom and talk about um, the redemption of Christ, just like Noah did, how he preached and he was blameless in his day and he walked with integrity and he walked with God. Um, And so are our days that much different? Probably not. And Jesus says that that's how it's going to be. And so we have the opportunity to do the same thing, like bring the kingdom of heaven and the way that we live our lives and the way that we obey him and the way that we build, you know, arcs all over the place and in the way that we offer um, the truth and the gospel as a, as a way of salvation. Like that, I mean, not to be like the street corner preacher, but the end is near. Like hopefully our lives and our words and the things that we're about and the things that we do are pulling people into arcs. Um, so that his kingdom can come and that it can be huge. A home run. It's a great exclamation point. That is. I think you can just end it right there. I love it. All right, this is the locker room where we break down sermons, stories, and scripture for the race of our faith. If this podcast has been serving you, hit follow on the notification bell. Leave us a rating if it's been serving you. I don't know. What else do we do, Quinn? Uh, Are we? Okay. Quinn has informed me. We now have an Instagram page, so we'll be populating that, and uh, hopefully that'll serve you as well. So thanks, Quinn. Quinn, what would you like to say? Anything? Yeah, you want to speak into the mic? Love this church family. You guys are awesome. (laughs) Thanks, Dan. See you guys. Thanks, Dan.